We're almost through our series on Exodus and what a journey it's been. So here in chapter 33, this morning, we really have the view from the top. So if you're with a Bible, why don't you open up to Exodus chapter 33 as we continue our series, Drawn Out to Draw In. Exodus chapter 33, verse 1. The Lord said to Moses, Depart, go up from here, you and the people you have brought up out of the land of Egypt, to the land which I swore to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, saying, To your offspring I will give it. I will send an angel before you and I will drive out the Canaanites, the Amorites, the Hittites, the Perizzites, the Hivites, and the Jebusites. Go up to a land flowing with milk and honey. But I will not go up with you, lest I consume you on the way. For you are a stiff-necked people." When the people heard this disastrous word, they mourned, and no one put on his ornaments. For the Lord had said to Moses, Say to the people of Israel, You are a stiff-necked people. If for a single moment I should go up among you, I would consume you. So now take off your ornaments, that I may know what to do with you. Therefore, the people of Israel stripped themselves of their ornaments from Mount Horeb onwards. Now Moses used to take the tent and pitch it outside the camp, far off from the camp, and he called it the tent of meeting. And everyone who sought the Lord would go out to the, camp, uh, out to the, out to the tent of meeting, which was outside the camp. Whenever Moses went out to the tent, all the people would rise up and each would stand at his tent door and watch Moses until he had gone into the tent. When Moses entered the tent, the pillar of cloud would descend and stand at the entrance of the tent, and the Lord would speak to Moses. And when all the people saw the pillar of cloud standing at the entrance of the tent, all the people would rise up and worship each at his tent door. Thus the Lord used to speak to Moses face to face as a man speaks to his friend. When Moses turned again into the camp, his assistant Joshua, the son of Nun, a young man, would not depart from the tent. Moses said to the Lord, See you say to me, bring up this people, but you have not let me know whom you will send with me. Yet you have said, I know you by name, and you have also found favor in my sight. Now, therefore, if I have found favor in your sight, please show me now your ways that I may know you in order to find favor in your sight. Consider, too, that this nation is your people. And he said, my presence will go with you and I will give you rest. And he said to him, 
If your presence will not go with me, do not bring us up from here. For how shall it be known that I have found favor in your sight, I and your people? Is it not in your going with us so that we are distinct, I and your people, from every other people on the face of the earth? And the Lord said to Moses, This very thing that you have spoken, I will do. For you have found favor in my sight, and I know you by name. Moses said, Please, show me your glory. And he said, I will make all my goodness pass before you, and will proclaim before you my name, the Lord. And I will be gracious to whom I will be gracious. And I will show mercy on whom I will show mercy. But he said, you cannot see my face. For man shall not see me and live. And the Lord said, behold, there is a place by me where you shall stand on the rock. And while my glory passes by, I will put you in a cleft of the rock And I will cover you with my hand until I have passed by. Then I will take away my hand and you shall see my back. But my face shall not be seen. This is the word of the Lord. Would you join with me in praying? Lord God, we thank you this morning as your people that you are a glorious God. You are a mighty God. Your glory and your might is so great that to see your face is to be consumed in an instant. What I pray as we read your word, you'd give us eyes to hear it, eyes to see it and ears to hear it, that we might know you, Lord, and trust you. And I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. This morning, I want to begin by reading to you an article from the Wall Street Journal from a couple of months ago by Sue Schellenbarger, entitled, The Most Anxious Generation Goes to Work. Schellenbarger writes, Michael Fenland's company is one of the nation's biggest employers of newly minted college grads. And he's watching a tidal wave approach. College presidents and deans tell him repeatedly that they've had to make managing students' anxiety and other mental health issues a priority. They're overwhelmed with the demand for mental health services on their campuses. I hear this again and again and again. It's really striking, says Mr. Fenlon. Chief People Officer for PricewaterhouseCoopers, which hires thousands of college grads each year. The article then goes on to talk about a recent study by the American Psychological Association entitled Stress in America from 2018. Uh, They surveyed 3,500 working adults and asked them the question, have you felt very anxious or nervous in the past month on one or more occasion? And they found that if you're 73 years of age or older, 17% of people said, yes, you know, I would describe myself as having been anxious, very anxious or more in the past month on one or more occasion. If you then go to boomers, the answer rate is 27% of people would say, yes, that's me. 
If you then go to Gen Xs, it increases to 35% of people would say, yes, that's me. If you then jump to millennials, that's 28 years of age or 23 years of age through to 38 years of age, that rises to 40%. If you then jump through to Gen Z, which is 18 to 22-year-olds working in the workplace, it jumps to a staggering 54% of respondents would say, yes, that's me. We live in the most anxious generation in history. And the proof of that, if you're looking for some, in our culture, you don't need to look any further than the toilet paper crisis. (laughs) In the face of the outbreak of the coronavirus, contrary to health authorities' advice, we've seen in the past week panic buying of toilet paper. You know, a friend of mine who's a minister in Edgecliff, described on Facebook an encounter he had while going to Woolies in Edgecliff. And he went to the elevators at Edgecliff Woolworths to go up into the supermarket and the doors opened and there was a middle-aged lady with a shopping trolley filled with toilet paper. And their eyes met and he looked at her and she looked at him and then she said, I do not know what I'm doing. (laughs) And walked off. And I feel it summarizes the situation, doesn't it? Mad panicking of people. But take it like to a more personal point, a more personal nature. Have you ever stared at the future and found yourself filled with fear? Illness strikes a loved one. And and you begin to feel panicked and ask the question... How will I even cope without them? You're trying to save for a deposit, and yet you watch your savings go backwards. And you feel filled with fear. How will I ever own a home in Sydney? You watch as your marriage begins to turn sour, and you begin to question How can I possibly survive much longer? An important exam looms and thoughts of failure flash through your mind. Maybe even sin that has taken you as a Christian to the brink in the past and you just feel rattled. You you feel like, what if I blow it all again? News headlines of the coronavirus striking and the stock market crashing and you begin to question about your job or your health or your food? Have you found yourself ever staring at the future and finding yourself filled with fear? Do you know what is absent in all of those scenarios? The presence of a sovereign and all-loving God. Well, this morning's message, which I believe is providential in the giving of this passage, I've entitled is, I will be with you. And there's three real points that I'm going to be looking at this morning. The first two are from the text. The last is a word of application. But one real just hope for us as a church this morning as we study this, and that is that we'd find assurance in the truth that no matter what sin or peril we face, God will always be with us. 
No matter what we face in the future, God will always be with us. Well, let's dive into point number one this morning, which I've entitled, A Disastrous Word. By way of context, uh, since we've been out of Exodus for a long time, you might be scratching your head to think where on earth we're up to in this story. You see, Exodus is a story of God's plan to draw a people out from Egypt, to draw them into himself, to have a personal relationship with them. And God had been working on this for hundreds and hundreds, thousands even of years, working to fulfill this promise he made to an elderly pagan man by the name of Abraham with no children. And he promised this elderly man that he would make him into a great nation. Turn the clock forward some hundreds of years later and the people of God have come into existence and yet they're enslaved in this cruel regime where they've been enslaved for more than 400 years. And he rescues them through another elderly man that he'd humbled across the course of his life in Moses. They send 10 plagues in through Moses he'd sent and the final one resulting in the death of the firstborn son of all creatures and people in the land of Egypt. And he'd saved them, he'd liberated them. And he'd taken them out and to Mount Sinai where he'd entered into this agreement with them which we read about in chapter 19 verses 5 and 6. God says, Now therefore if you will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant... You shall be my treasured possession among all peoples, for all the earth is mine. And you shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. These are the words you shall speak to the people of Israel. God says, if you'll keep my commandments, you'll be this precious, treasured possession of mine, a precious people, a kingdom of priests, mediators between God and man. And the people all agreed voluntarily to enter into this agreement with God. And Moses went up onto the mountain and God gives the Ten Commandments in the presence of all of the people. And they then seal the covenant with the people in this blood ceremony where all of the people are sprinkled in blood. And with a special meal on Mount Sinai with Moses and 70 of the elders. Moses then returned up to Mount Sinai to receive two tablets of stone with the Ten Commandments engraved and instructions for the clothing of priests and sacrifices and for the building of the tabernacle, which is so amazing because it means that God will dwell in their midst as their people, his people. But while Moses was gone, they reject the whole thing. And Aaron has kind of a brain snap and makes these two golden bulls and they set up this alternate worship ceremony to seal the deal with their two new gods. And it's an absolute tragedy. This is one of the greatest betrayals of the entire Bible. Israel rejects their God almost immediately after entering into a relationship with him. It's like adultery on your wedding night. And God threatens to wipe them completely out and to start again with Moses. And Moses pleads with God not to do it. And God relents. And that's where our passage begins. Read with me again, chapter 33, verse 1. The Lord said to Moses, Depart, go up from here 
You and the people with whom you have brought up out of the land of Egypt to the land which I swore to Abraham, Isaac and Jacob, saying, to your offspring I will give it. I will send an angel before you and I will drive out the Canaanites, the Amorites, the Hittites and the Perizzites, the Hivites and the Jebusites. Go up to a land flowing with milk and honey. But I will not go up among you, lest I consume you on the way. For you are a stiff-necked people. God is determined, even now, to remain faithful to his promise to Abraham, to bring them to the land of Canaan. And so he says, I will send an angel before you to drive out the inhabitants of the land, but I won't go among you, because if I do, I will destroy you, because you are stiff-necked. You know, this term, to be stiff-necked, it's a Hebrew idiom, and it comes from sort of an agricultural people. It's the idea of a donkey or a mule that is resistant to turning its head and being steered. It's a symbol that means, or an idiom that means to be stubborn and rebellious. And so God says, I'll fulfill my promise, but not with you, lest I destroy you. I'm going to send an angel before you. But how does this make sense? I mean, isn't the angel of the Lord still the Lord? Hasn't God been leading them by the angel of the Lord that is the Lord since the very beginning? Since they left Egypt, it was the angel of the Lord who is the Lord going before them. It was the angel of the Lord who is the Lord in the burning bush that first appeared to Moses in chapter 3. It was the angel of the Lord that is the Lord during the Passover in chapters 12 through to 14 and in the wilderness in chapter 23. Well, here's the answer. The truth is that the angel of the Lord is actually God's adjustment for sinners and therefore actually a gift of his grace. Alec Motya in his commentary says the following He says the angel is an adjustment whereby the holy God can, in all his holiness, come among and accompany sinners and bring them into an inheritance from which their sinfulness would have excluded them. The angel is the whole divine nature in an outreaching of grace. You see, God is holy and wickedness cannot survive in his presence. And because he's the source of all power and perfect injustice, perfect in beauty, perfect in goodness, the closer sinners get to his presence, his very being moves to destroy them. It's akin to watching an elderly person be assaulted and you standing by. A good person intervenes to end the assault. A good person doesn't just go, I'll pretend nothing's happened, and walks on by. And so it is with God, yet a billion fold. His distance from sinners in so many ways is a mercy. You know, it's common in our culture to hear people kind of arrogantly speak of talking to God, as though I'd like to ask God a few questions. The truth is, you wouldn't get a chance. He would consume you in an instant. And so the angel of the Lord is his way of adjusting his presence. 
to come among or before sinners in an outreaching of grace. Keep reading with me verses 4 through to 6. When the people heard this disastrous word, they mourned and no one put on his ornaments. For the Lord had said to Moses, say to the people of Israel, you are a stiff-necked people. If for a single moment I should go up among you, I would consume you. So now take off your ornaments that I may know what to do with you. Therefore, the people of Israel stripped themselves of their ornaments from Mount Horeb onwards. Hearing that God is going to distance himself from them, people are cut to the heart and begin to mourn their sin. And so they take off their jewelry as a sign of their sorrow, not just for a day or two days, but from Mount Horeb onwards. For the next 40 years, they stop wearing jewelry. But here's the question. Why was Israel so rattled by their sin now? I mean, it's not like they'd just become a stiff-necked people. They always were. Exodus 5:21, and they said to Moses and Aaron, the Lord look on you and judge you because you've made a stink in the sight of Pharaoh and his servants and put a sword in their hand to kill us. Exodus 14, 11 to 12, they said to Moses, is it because there are no graves in Egypt that you've taken out, us out here to die in the wilderness? What have you done to us in bringing us out of Egypt? Is not this what we said to you in Egypt? Leave us alone that we may serve the Egyptians for it would have been better for us to serve the Egyptians than to die in the wilderness. Exodus 16.3 And the people of Israel said to them, Would that we have died by the hand of the Lord in the land of Egypt when we sat by meat pots and ate bread to the full, for you have brought us out into this wilderness to kill this whole assembly with hunger. Exodus 17.3 But the people thirsted there for water, and the people grumbled against Moses and said, Why did you bring us out of Egypt to kill us and our children and our livestock with thirst? Israel were always a stubborn and rebellious people. Why was this word only now so disastrous to them? They should have known that God could not rightly dwell with them. And the answer is because they'd entered into a covenant and been given the law. And the law for the very first time, had exposed them. Paul writes the following in Romans 7. What then shall we say? That the law is sin? By no means. Yet if if it had not been for the law, I would not have known sin. For I would not have known what it is to covet. If the law had not said, you shall not covet. But sin, seizing an opportunity through the commandment, produced in me all kinds of covetousness. For apart from the law, sin lies dead. You see, Israel had always been rebellious and stubborn. They just didn't realize it. The giving of the law was God's good gift to them. It was the path of life about how to live. He had given them an awareness of their true condition and tempted them inadvertently to do what is forbidden. And having discovered that they had defied the law in the morning, they're rattled and in mourning for their sin. I wonder if you can relate to this. 
Maybe you're a new Christian and you kind of feel like there's a million things you need to grow in all at once. And you didn't even know that any of them were a thing before you became a Christian. And you're anxiously trying to achieve them all at one go. Maybe you're a Christian and you did something you deeply regret and you feel crushed. You thought you were above that. Behold the exposing power of the law of God. Well, in summary, Israel were never the people they ought to be. But their sin had now been exposed by the law and they were deeply broken, stubborn, rebellious, stiff-necked and betrayers of God Almighty. This disastrous word had left them rattled and would affect their practice for the next 40 years. Well, let's keep reading. Not just point one, a disastrous word, but point two, a friend seeks reassurance. You see, despite this disastrous word, our passage is still filled with like hints of grace. God is still determined to take Israel to the promised land and he declares he will not dwell with them so that he won't destroy them. Even that is a message of grace. And there's still even more grace in the way he maintains a special relationship with his servant Moses. Read with me verse 7. It says the following. Now Moses used to take the tent and pitch it outside the camp, far off from the camp. And he called it the tent of meeting. And everyone who sought the Lord would go out to the tent of meeting, which was outside the camp. And whenever Moses went out to the tent, all the people would rise up and each would stand at his tent door and watch Moses until he'd gone into the tent. And when Moses entered the tent, the pillar of cloud would descend and stand at the entrance of the tent and the Lord would speak with Moses. And when all the people saw the pillar of cloud standing at the entrance of the tent, all the people would rise up and worship each at his tent door. You know, the way this passage is written, it's kind of describing Moses' usual practice his usual pattern of behavior. Moses would take a tent that's not the tabernacle at all, as, as the tabernacle, well, this was well before the tabernacle was even constructed. And he would take this tent and he would pitch this tent well outside the camp. And it's highly symbolic. Why outside the, tent, uh, outside the camp and far off? What's well, symbolic of their relationship with God? He can't yet dwell with them, and so meetings need to be removed from the people's presence. But it's still open to anyone who wants to come and seek God. Verse 7 says anyone who wanted to seek God could come outside the camp. And it was still close enough for them to witness what was going on. As Moses heads out, they stand as a mark of their reverence for and respect for Moses as a leader and as a mediator. And as the pillar of cloud descends upon the tent, symbolic of God's presence, they fall down and they worship that picture of God. But Moses' relationship with God is truly amazing and close. Read with me verse 11. Thus the Lord used to speak with Moses face to face as a man speaks with his friend. God speaks to Moses from the cloud, literally mouth to mouth. Perhaps better, person to person. It's akin to when someone speaks with a friend. Imagine for a second what that would be like. 
to speak with God as though with a good friend. It's an amazing gift of grace to the people of God that their leader enjoys such a relationship with God. And look at the change since God had first appeared to Moses in the burning bush. They didn't even, he didn't even know his name and he was afraid and hid his face. And now speaks with him as though with a friend. And so our story now shifts as we're granted special access to listen in with one such meeting. Uh, read with me verse 12. In the midst of the ten, as God speaks with Moses face to face as a friend, he says this, Moses says this, See you say to me, bring up this people, but you have not let me know whom you will send with me. Moses quotes two different things that God had said to him previously. Firstly, bring up this people, I bring them up to the promised land. And Moses says, you haven't even said who's coming with me. You can almost sense the anxiety of Moses in this statement. He's after reassurance from God. Moses sees a difference between God sending the angel of the Lord before him and God himself going with him. In some ways, it reminds us of Moses back in chapter 4 where he repeatedly refused to be sent by God and said, they won't listen to me. I'm not eloquent of speech. Send someone else. And yet the difference here is that Moses now knows what he truly needs is the Lord with him. But here's the question. Why was Moses so anxious at this point for reassurance from God? You know, as we've seen, the angel of the Lord, which is still the Lord, albeit adjusted for sinners, going before them through the whole of the Exodus. More, God had already declared his commitment to keeping his promise. And the covenant itself was sealed with blood, a sign of their future need for forgiveness from the Lord. You know, we're so familiar, I think, as Christians with this story. We look at it with the lens of hindsight. This is the very first time Israel had really been faced with their sin. And the future with God to them looked so uncertain. Would God wipe them out? Would God stay true to his promises? You know, as we read through this passage, we're going to see something of the humanity of Moses. He's going to repeatedly ask God to reassure him that he's with him. Moses is actually looking for reassurance from God. He's looking at the future and he's nervous. And so he's coming before his friend, his king, and he's asking him to reassure him that he's with him. Read on verse 12. Yet you have said, I know you by name, and you have also found favor in my sight. Now therefore, if I have found favor in your sight, please show me your ways, that I may know you in order to find favor in your sight. Consider too that this nation is your people. The second thing that Moses repeats back to God is, you've said, I know you by name, 
And you've said to me, God, that I'm favored in your sight. You know, I know you by name. It's not like Facebook names, right? We know lots of names on Facebook. You know, in this time, your name was reflective of your being, your character. And so what God is saying, I know you by name, he's kind of saying to Moses, I know what you're really like. If you knew you were favored by God, and you're me, you might be tempted to say, so, God, you said that I'm favored by you, so give me what I want. Give me an easy life. Give me a spouse. Give me kids. Give me a house. Give me a massive stash of toilet paper. I don't know. But that's not what Moses says. Read with me again verse 13. Now therefore, if I have found favor in your sight, please now show me now your ways that I might know you in order to find more favor in your sight. Did you catch that? If I've found favor, show me what you love, that I might find more favor. Moses doesn't ask for something from God. He asked that he might please God even more. Isn't that beautiful? It's like Psalm 1. Blessed is the man whose delight is the instruction of the Lord, who loves when God tells him what to do. And look how God responds to him. Verse 14, he says this. He says, my presence will go with you, and I will give you rest. What comfort and reassurance this must have been for Moses. Who will go with me, Lord? You haven't said. And the reply comes, I will. But Moses is not a man easily satisfied. He's really rattled and he wants even more assurance from God. And so we read on in verse 15. He says the following. He says, and he said to him, if your presence will not go with me, do not bring us up from here for... How shall it be known that I have found favor in your sight, I and your people? Is it not in your going with us so that we are distinct, I and your people, from every other people on the face of the earth? How massive is this? Moses says, if your presence doesn't go with me, don't even bring me up out of the desert. Leave me here in the wilderness. Don't give us the land flowing with milk and honey and a permanent home, vineyards and safety, unless we have you. You know, Moses was a man so filled with love for God. He doesn't just want God's blessing. He wants God himself. Doesn't that make you just want to experience something of what Moses had tasted of God? You know, I found myself asking this week, could I pray that prayer? Don't give me that house or that job or that relationship or that health or that holiday. Unless you go with me, and I have more of you. Moses isn't done with asking for God for reassurance yet. He wants even more. Read with me verse 16. He says the following. Is it not in your going with us so that we are distinct, I and your people, from every other people in the face of the earth? And the Lord said to Moses, This very thing that you have spoken, 
I will do. For you have found favor in my sight, and I know you by name. Isn't it the fact that you are with not just me, but us as a people, Moses says, that we're different from every other nation in the whole world? And God says, you are favored in my eyes, and I will do as you asked. But Moses still isn't done with asking God for reassurance. He goes on in verse 18 and says this. Moses said, please, show me your glory. And God said, I will make all my goodness pass before you. And I will proclaim my name, before you my name, the Lord. And I will be gracious to whom I will be gracious. And I will show mercy on whom I will show mercy. But, he said, you cannot see my face. For man shall not see me and live. And the Lord said, behold, there is a place by me where you shall stand on the rock. And while my glory passes by, I will put you in the cleft of the rock. And I will cover you with my hand until I have passed by. Then I'll take it away, my hand away. And you shall see my back. But my face shall not be seen. You know, Moses had seen the glory of God repeatedly as he had met with God in his tent. But the glory had always been obscured by the walls of his tent. And so Moses is basically saying, God, show me that I'm really favored in your sight. Give me a glimpse of your glory directly, not through your tent wall. Let me see you. And God says, I will let my goodness pass by you. But only because I'm gracious and merciful to whoever I choose. You can't see my face, but I'll place you in a cleft rock and guard you with my hand. And after I've passed by, you'll see my back. You know, to see someone's back is an idiom in Hebrew that means to barely see anything at all. To just see a glimpse. And so God is saying, I'll show you but a glimpse of me. Well, in summary, God's people and his appointed leader Moses were rattled by their sin. Not because there was a change in them, but because they saw themselves with clarity for the first time. And Moses comes repeatedly to God, asking for the same thing. Reassurance that he will be with them. Reassurance that he ultimately finds in a revelation of God's glory. And that's point two, a friend in need of reassurance. Not just point two, a friend in need of reassurance. Point three, a last point, a word of reassurance. See, we started this message by talking about the truth that we live in one of the most anxious generations the world has ever seen. And as a result, I can't help but feel that many of us relate to both the people of Israel and Moses in this passage. In the face of sin or perhaps difficulty, we look to the future 
and we feel shaken. We feel that all is uncertain. Whether that be from social change as Western culture rejects Christian values. Whether that be from personal brokenness or illness that you're walking through or discontentment. The world seems somewhat in chaos. Traditional alliances are breaking down, conflict looming, environmental destruction, global warming, the threat of pandemic. And just as Israel were rattled by their sin and the judgment they faced from God, just as they looked at the future and in desperate need of reassurance from God, of his favour and grace, I can't help but feel so do we. But here's the question. Where can we find reassurance that everything's going to be okay? The world says, maybe stop thinking negatively. Try a bit of positivity. Maybe some meditation. Maybe do some exercise. Maybe get some sleep. Maybe drink less. Maybe read a book. And they all might help some. But ultimately, they're no help at all. Because they ignore the reality that the world we live in is deeply broken. But there's good news. True hope and help. It's written all over this passage. Read with me again. Verses 18 through to 20. Moses said, Please show me your glory. And he said, I will make my goodness pass before you, and I will proclaim my name before you, the Lord. And I will be gracious to whom I will be gracious, and I will show mercy on whom I will show mercy. But you cannot see my face, for man shall not see me and live. Moses asked to see God's glory. And God said, you can't see it or you'll perish. But God has shown us what Moses failed to see. In John 1.14, John writes, And the word became flesh and dwelt among us. And we have seen his glory. Glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. You see that angel in verse 2 where God says, I'll send my angel before you lest I consume you. The angel which was God's presence mediated, which was already a mercy, which was his presence adjusted for sinners so he wouldn't consume them, pointed to the Lord Jesus, the eternal Son of God, who the writer of Colossians, Paul says, is the image of the invisible God. And so when we believe in him, we believe in the Father. And when we see him, we see the Father. And when we hear him, we hear the Father. We don't have to guess the heart of God towards us. We've seen it in the face of the Lord Jesus Christ. The whole purpose of his coming was to endure a place taking death on the cross for our sake. God says to Moses in verse 5 of chapter 33, If I go up with them even for a moment, I'll consume them. But the end of chapter 40, the tabernacle is constructed, placed in the midst of God's people, and his glory fills it. How? 
What had changed? They're the same stubborn wretches they were before. The answer is that God knew that Jesus would come and die a place-taking death on our behalf so that he could pass right over their sin. Paul writes it this way in Romans 3. God put forward Jesus as a propitiation by his blood to be received by faith. This was to show God's righteousness because in his divine forbearance he had passed over former sin. It was to show his righteousness at the present time so that he might be just and the justifier of one who has faith in Jesus. God continued to exercise grace towards his people and to dwell in their midst because he knew that Jesus would be consumed on their behalf. When Jesus came, knowing what he would purchase for us on the cross, he taught in John 15, 15, No longer do I call you servants, for a servant doesn't know what his master is doing. But I have called you friends. For all that I have heard from my Father, I have made known to you. Remember in verse 11, Moses is described as speaking to God as a friend. Here's the amazing reality. So too for all who come to Christ in faith. Jesus says in John 14:1, Let not your hearts be troubled. Believe in God. Believe also in me. In my Father's house are many rooms. If it would not be so, would I have told you that I go to prepare a place for you? And if I go to prepare a place for you, I will come again and take you to myself, that where I am, you may also be. And Jesus says just before he's taken up to heaven in Matthew 28, 20, and behold, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. You know, here's the thing. It's so easy to hear that and say, yeah, 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 I know all that. But then live like it's not even true. And embrace the panic that so many people are feeling in this city. Focusing on self-preservation no matter what the cost to other people. What would it look like to really believe Jesus when he says, and behold, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. It'd be to walk through this life knowing that he's right by your side. It'd be to walk through this life knowing that you found favor in his sight. Not because of anything in you, but because of his grace. To walk through this life knowing that he knows you by name and he'll never forsake you. To have a confidence to face every and any situation. Here's the final question I want to leave you guys with as a word of application as we close. If the gracious and sovereign God is really with me. What's one thing I need to do differently? 
Maybe it's to start giving. Maybe it's to spend less time planning and and more time praying. Maybe it's to share Christ with a colleague and take a leap of faith. Maybe it's not hoarding like toilet paper or face masks, but moving towards your neighbor in love instead of away. Maybe it's just to start preaching the gospel to yourself and to stop listening to yourself. If the gracious and sovereign God is really with me, what's one thing I need to do differently? Friends, we're so familiar with the events of Exodus, it's, it's initially hard for us to see how fearful and disoriented the people of God must have been. A disastrous word in response to a terrible sin. Yet I hope we can now understand why Moses pleaded with God, his friend, for reassurance and to see his glory. But unlike Moses, we don't need to ask to see his face. We've already seen it in Jesus. He'll never forsake us. I trust we've found assurance in the truth that no matter what sin or peril we face, God will always be with us. Would you pray with me? Lord God, we want to thank you so much for your patient perseverance. We look at the people of Israel, our hearts are prone to to be frustrated with them and confused about how they so quickly and repeatedly could walk away from you. And yet all the while, we keep seeing ourselves in them as well. And so how good to know of your grace. How good to know that you don't count our sins against us but you've moved towards us in love. Not with just an angel before us, but your son in our place. His Holy Spirit dwelling in our hearts. His sovereign lordship over all things. His imminent return. His kindness, his friendship, his love. And so we ask, Lord, this morning, help us just to trust you. Help us to see you this week and the weeks to come, whatever may be for, that you're with us, that you won't forsake us, that you'll carry us to the end. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.